The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 64, the week of April 23rd. Alex, last week was the big security conference in uh, San Francisco. How was Detroit? <laughs> you know, um, I was at another big security conference, not really a security conference, uh, the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association Technology Conference, yeah. where we spoke about security. You had some security speakers there, right? We did. Um, I actually was uh, even quoted in a, a Housing Wire article. Oh, how about congratulations, that? Housing Thank Wire? You. Yeah, I know. Big deal. Uh, uh, pretty good stuff. Uh, well, welcome back. We're, we're both back to Denver in time for the snow over the weekend. Pretty good. Yeah, you know, beautiful weather. Um, of course, uh, snow on Saturday, seventy on Sunday. Yeah. Sounds like Denver. Sounds like Denver. All right, let's go ahead and jump into stuff. First of all, uh, we do want to remind you we have a Slack channel, over 400 participants in there, and a great place to have conversation. There's a link to join the Slack channel, both in the show notes and on the front page of uh, colorado-security.com. Also, uh, if you subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, please rate us. We would love to have your rating as part of that. And we do want to remind you we have a, a Patreon uh, campaign. If you want to support the show, we would really appreciate it. Any uh, any contributions you give go directly toward paying for the uh, the like the hosting and the the hardware we use to actually do the show. Um, we do appreciate those very appreciate very much those who are already supporting the show. Exactly. So let's jump into the news. Uh, we had a story this week. Denver rent is up forty eight percent since two thousand and ten. The only place worse is the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, up really basically 50% over the last eight years. That's pretty significant. Uh, obviously, it's become a lot more expensive to rent in Denver. A lot of folks having to move further from the city. Uh, but it just goes to show how attractive, how nice a place this is to live. And while it has been up 48%, uh, it still could be worse. Uh, that's actually, you know, the percentage gain. Looking at the actual numbers in the, the fourth quarter of 2017, the uh, effective rent, uh, some index that they use, I guess, is, was about $1,400 in Denver. Um, well, it was about $3,250 in San Francisco. So yeah. And I, I we're, guarantee we're still you, doing okay. the folks in San Francisco are not making twice as much as the folks in Denver. I guarantee you, as much as they, you might think they're getting paid well, they are not getting paid twice as much. So yeah. uh, for a quality of life perspective, uh, this is a whole lot more affordable out here. Uh, moving along... Uh, uh, there's a, a survey here from Denver Business Journal of, around which cities most wanted to have Amazon HQ2 come to town. Uh, and the punchline, it was not Denver. Yeah. And in fact, Denver least wanted to have HQ2 come to town. Um, we, we are not only lowest in saying we, we should reach out and we need it. Uh, basically, there was only 16% of Denver folks said that we need to have HQ2 come. We also rated near the lowest for saying, what well, you know, should we give tax breaks and would people be willing to have a longer commute in order to have HQ, HQ2 come to town? I think uh, some of the cities that were high on the list were uh, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, and I think maybe Atlanta. Yeah, there's, I remember Atlanta for sure being on the list. And of course, near the bottom of support for what they'd be willing to do was... Uh, Austin right there with us saying, right, exactly. <laughs> don't, we don't need it. We don't want We're it. already doing okay. We don't need any more people. Yeah. Uh, so next uh, venture capitalist funding is still high in Colorado and we ranked eighth in us funding. Yeah. So obviously yet another indication that, that Denver and Colorado in general are really high in the tech, um, in the tech world, very well appreciated from both the workers' perspective and from the funding perspective. We're we're you know getting quite a bit of venture funding here in town. There were some companies listed that uh, got funding recently. None of them were security companies, uh, like a lot of biotech. Uh, but you know there was a great quote from uh, someone at PwC in there that you know says that uh, these companies are using blockchain and artificial intelligence and big data to to change the world. So well, really well, excited for that. If there's one thing we know about venture capitalists, is they, they love their buzzwords and they love being covered in, in media. So they'll, they'll say what it takes to be covered. Uh, speaking of venture capitalists, Techstars yeah. is, uh, is the big um, accelerator up in Boulder that was started by, um, oh man. Brad uh, Feld. Yeah, Brad Feld and, and, a, and a couple others. We had Brad on the show last year. Um, they've actually hired a new president to run the Techstars Foundation. Um, and she was Lou is Lou is uh, Lou 
Cordona, Cordova is her name, um, and she previously was a chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank out of Kansas. Yeah, so the, the Techstars Foundation is a little bit different than Techstars itself. Um, you know, it's a nonprofit that um, is trying to work to help uh, bring, you know, sort of the same kind of services, funding acceleration uh, to uh, to potential companies that uh, are, that have not had it, you know, um, minority owned or, you know, people that have been left out of the process previously. Yeah, so uh, really cool to see them investing there and trying to help, uh, trying to help you know move things in the right direction from a startup perspective. Uh, so congratulations to those guys. And we have an article from the Denver Post about uh, the Facebook fiasco that has been going on. And you might think, well, okay, that there's nothing new there and doesn't really have anything to do with Colorado, well, other than that the fact that you know there's a whole bunch of people in Colorado that Facebook probably you know gave their data away. But besides that. Um, the article actually quotes someone that we know, uh, Mr. Rob Reck. So Tamara Chung, the reporter from Denver Post, was trying to figure out, you know, trying to bring the story home. What What is the impact of the Facebook breach to Colorado companies? So they interviewed a, a few of the, the folks here in town, including myself, uh, just to ask, you know, how does this impact our customers? How does it impact our co- our companies? You know, and, and at Ping, as we talk about identity quite a bit, and Facebook is one of the larger identity providers on the, for, at least on the consumer side, there's some impact and it's an interesting conversation. I think t- worth taking a look if you're interested in knowing how does the Facebook breach impact uh, companies, not just impacting individuals. Yeah. So next, uh, Castleview High School, we've talked about this previously, uh, but they started a program called Operation Cyber Blanket. And basically they're helping uh, those in the community to make sure that their uh, personal devices and networks be, are, are secured uh, so that you don't have uh, problems from uh, from security issues. Yeah, so there's a video on this on the link here. You can learn a little bit about what they do. Uh, also give some information on how you can reach out if you know someone who could use this kind of volunteer service. Um, so I, I think it's a really cool thing and, and really want to applaud not only the students who are doing this, but the adult mentors they have that are making this happen. Yeah, and pretty cool that they uh, they made a story on you know Fox, uh, KDVR, the Fox channel here in town. Uh, the video is from that, so yeah. pretty cool. Uh, next story is actually a blog post that I wrote for Ping Identity, uh, and it kind of is a follow-up to the news that we have re- received our ISO 27001 certification. This is an international standard that kind of sets guidelines for how you do your IT and security practices. Uh, And then this blog post describes what does it mean for our customers. Um, So if you're interested in knowing why why you might care about a company receiving ISO certification, this is a nice summary about that. It adds some assurance to our customers and it really makes it much easier for us internally to do uh, communication around security and really maturing all of our processes. And I would like to give you guys kudos, Rob. ISO 27000, it it's not an easy thing to get certified in. Um, you can't just decide one day that you're going to do it. And, uh, you know, next week you're certified, uh, lots of work that went into that. I'm sure Yeah, for us, it was about a two year process. It, it, you know, there's a a maturation behind the scenes before you're really ready to, to go have the third party come in and, and do the review. Uh, Optive, they opened their new Denver headquarters this week. Um, they are part of a, a new building downtown, new skyscraper. Yeah. Uh, they've got their name on it. Optive tower, optive tower. And, yeah. uh, I've heard it's nice and swanky. Yeah. So it's optive tower at the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this wrong, but it's like the Gates Plaza and Chipotle, the Chipotle cafeteria, something yes. like that. Right. <laughs> like, like all three of the ma- big companies in there really wanted to have their name on the building. And there was a little bit of bidding war. Uh, so congrats to, for, to optive for, for getting the tower named after them. This is, uh, I think it's the second tallest skyscraper in Denver now. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I think it's the second tallest. It's definitely a beautiful new building. I can see it from my office. Um, I- I'm looking forward to going and seeing. I've heard it's very nice. Uh, it is cool also that we have a, a building with a security company's name on it here yeah. in town. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Milestone. Speaking of Denver security companies, which is really all we do here, uh, CyberGRX and Deloitte have partnered. Uh, so as you guys may know, CyberGRX does third-party risk uh, management services where, where basically they're a platform that enterprises can use to get access to the security posture of, of different vendors. Um, and of course, in order to do that, CyberGRX has to do some kind of assessment of those security vendors. 
Well, it looks like in this announcement, they have reached agreement with Deloitte that they can use Deloitte to go out and do the assessments for them rather than CyberGRX having to do, all, do them all themselves. They now have a partner who can help deliver you know, at global scale since Deloitte is so big. It seems like a really smart um, partnership there. If you are a, a small startup and you need to assess people all around the world, having a, uh, a company with global reach like that is really going to be helpful. Yeah, scalable. And then finally in the news this week, um, a company called DeepCam out of Longmont unveiled their new product at a, a security show in Las Vegas. Wait, this, the, the big security show last week? No, no, no. This is a, this is a little <laughs> bit different. Um, International we, Security Conference and Expo in Las Vegas? Yes. <laughs> That's the one. Um they, uh, so this is not a cybersecurity startup. This is a physical security startup. The company is looking uh, to help stop uh, shoplifting and uh, they're using artificial intelligence to yeah. help figure out when uh, when people in stores are, are stealing things. So this is both awesome and really scary at the same time, right? right. So there's ca- gonna be cameras in the stores looking for what, you know, not humans, but what cameras pick up as suspicious activity that might lead to, to theft. And they say that they can cover, you know, catch way, way higher percentage of theft than stores usually catch without these cameras. Yeah, I think they said that um, normal loss rates are about 10%. Uh, normal um, catch, or catch, catch rates, rates. Sorry, yeah. catch rates are about 10% for yeah. folks that are, are trying to steal things. Uh, so it does seem like that there's a little bit of an opportunity there if, you, if you're leaving right. 90% of it on the table. Yeah. Uh, uh, using, you know, creepy AI technology for monitoring people could, could help with that. Yeah, it, and this actually reminds me of a story that has nothing to do with Colorado, but uh, where China has, you know, been they've been using cameras to find people, and they had cameras in a stadium with like fifty thousand attendees at the stadium, and they were able to from the cameras pick out the one individual um, fugitive that they were looking for. You know, basically, I, I assume from from the gate, but it might have been face, facial recognition. I don't know, but either way, uh, we are moving we are moving to, towards one of those dystopian movies that. Yes, we've been watching for, since for the last thirty years. Uh, let's hope that uh, that deep cam does not push us towards the uh, the, the things that are happening in, in China right now. So we'll see. All right. So moving over to the Slack message of the week. Uh, congratulations to Steve Carlton. Steve, we just wanted to call you out for your post recognizing the Operation Cyber Blanket story we just talked about on KDVR, and and also for your help in organizing the group. Um, so. With our sponsor, Andre Gata, we want to you know, give you access to get something from the Colorado Eagle Security Store. And once again, say thank you to what you've been doing and, and really the good conversation you started in the Slack channel this week. Yeah, good job, Steve. Thanks. Uh, with that, we will move on to our events. So we do have an event calendar on the website at colorado-security.com. Go check that out for the latest events. And the first one that we have for this week uh, the Women in Security meeting is happening on the 24th. This is their one-year anniversary, so make sure you bring candles or a, a card. Or What's the appropriate uh, gift for a one-year anniversary? I think paper. I think is it's it paper, paper, right? Yeah. Paper mache, right. maybe. I, you know, some $100 bills, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, the Colorado... Uh, excuse me. The Cloud Security Alliance Colorado meet, chapter is having their April meeting also on the 24th. On the 25th, uh, there's a GDPR meetup talking about Article 32 and the Elastic Stack. On the 25th, DenSec is having their monthly meetup. That is downtown. Uh, SecureSet is doing a one of their Capture the Flag events on the 27th. And if you have never done a Capture the Flag event and you're thinking this is going to be too hard for me, they have just the solution for you. Show up an hour early at 5 o'clock. They'll give you a a little bit of a pre-event training and show you how you can participate in the capture the flag. So when the real event starts at six o'clock, you're, you have some support and you actually know what to do. So pretty cool stuff. On the 28th, Colorado Springs ISSA has one of their many seminars. That's the 8 a.m. to 12 o'clock Saturday event where you, you basically just get, you know, four CPEs for, for free. And on May 3rd, uh, CTA is doing their insight series uh, entitled Turn Big Data into Big Business. Pretty good stuff. Uh, this is one of those that will be pretty relevant for a lot of companies here in town. Uh, you know, we're looking just one week after that, right? So just just really three weeks from now, we'll be at RMISE, our big conference here in town. It is really sneaking up on us, Rob. Yeah, I know we, we've done really well with, with sponsorship. I think there's still a, a couple sponsor slots open, last I heard. A few, not too many, but if you want to sponsor, you still can. I, I do. I am 
pretty confident we'll sell that out this year. Uh, and registration is, is moving along really well. So if you haven't got signed up yet, please do. Um, we're, we're looking to, to blow the numbers off of what we've had in previous years. And uh, hopefully we, we really fill out the convention center. I feel like we're about halfway to where we need to be on registration. Um, that's, you know, a little bit ahead, I think, of where we want to be. But, you know, pretty typical. People tend to, to wait a little bit before they actually register. Even though we offer substantial early bird discounts, which have now passed. Oh, yeah. well. Well, sign up now. Sign up and come see us there. Both Alex and I will be there. I think we both are speaking a couple different times. Yep, exactly. Um, so looking forward to it. All right. Should we uh, jump over to events? Or excuse me, to, to jobs, I mean. Let's do it. So first job, uh, the best job is there's a senior security analyst position at Ping Identity that will be working on my infrastructure security team. Uh, we're looking for someone who's you know, got a good amount of experience and, and really wants to help us lead and form an infrastructure security function going uh, into the future. Uh, the next best job, if you are not a senior security analyst, is uh, Pulte Financial Services is looking for a uh, two security interns for this summer. So uh, if you are a student, um, if you are someone that uh, is looking for a, a summer internship, uh, apply for that. We would love to have you. Awesome. Carbon Black is hiring a product security engineer. So someone focused on application security here in town. Nice. I know they're building out a lot of uh, folks up in Boulder. Uh, Peak Travel Group is looking for a director of information security and compliance, but this is a home-based position. Very cool. So you get to work from home and, and run a security team, huh? Exactly. Hmm. Uh, RLH Corporation is hiring a director of information security and infrastructure. Who is RLH? Do you know? I don't. All right. While you talk, I'll look it up. Okay. Uh, next, uh, T-Tech, formerly known as Teletech, uh, is looking for a senior information security engineer. So RHL is a investment organization. They do investments, uh, capital stuff. Yeah. There you go. Sounds like fun. Uh, Comcast is looking for a senior auditor of technology. So if you want to be an uh, auditor for Comcast, got a position for you. Very cool. The director of the interior, the USGS, is hiring a security specialist here. I assume that's over at the Federal Center over at 6th and Sims. I believe so. Uh, First Bank is hiring a cybersecurity analyst. And CenturyLink is hiring an intern focused on tech planning and security for this yes, summer. Exactly. I think that takes us to the end of the news this week. Alex, anything else you want to add before we kick it over to our feature interview? Get out there and register for RMISC. Uh, we do have our feature interview this week with Mike Glenn. Mike is the CISO for Cable Labs. We've talked a little bit about them in the past. Uh, not only is he now at Cable Labs, but he's been in the telecommunications company in Denver for a very long time. Um, worked with with Quest and CenturyLink and um, has... has has done a lot of cool stuff. So interesting stories about him. And, you know, we start off the interview and talk about a world record that he has. A world record. He 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 was a world record holder. He actually had it taken. But wait, wait, wait. Don't give it away. Oh, I'm not giving it Don't away. Don't give it away. If you you got to listen to the interview if you want to hear it. All right. Everyone have a great week. Thanks, Rob. This is Tim Coogan, Chief Information Security Officer of Denver International Airport. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security for Colorado Security Professionals by Colorado Security Professionals. This is Rob Reck, and today I am sitting with Mike Glenn. Mike, you're the, the CISO for Cable Labs uh, here's, here in Denver. We've talked about you guys on the show a few times, um, and, I, and I, I'm looking forward to getting to hear a little bit more about Cable Labs and your background. But first, you know, I, I want to use this opportunity to, to ask for an autograph, as I understand that you are a former world record holder. Mike, what world record did you hold for a short amount of time? It's in a pretty, pretty amazing record. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, 12 years old, I set the world record on pogo stick jumping. Now, is that consecutive number of, of jumps, jumps or is it yes. duration? And we counted, yes, the number yeah. of jumps. And uh, I made the local papers, and, <laughs> and we had validation. And before the book was published, as you can imagine, at 12 years old, it wasn't too hard to break. Yeah. And so someone read the newspaper article and then broke it. <laughs> Um, and you know, after after me, and, and they were put in the, the Guinness oh. Book of World Records. So, dashed my hopes to go on to a, be a professional pogo stick uh, yeah, jumper. It, it killed your whole professional pogo stick career. Huh? It did. It really did. So, how many jumps was it? Um, I don't even remember. You know, thirty-eight thousand or something oh like goodness. that. That you know, you're you're clicking. When I got off the pogo stick, 
I was so sore I had to be carried in, right? <laughs> I couldn't as walk. As a 12-year-old, that's pretty <laughs> impressive, too. At, at my current age, that wouldn't be impressive at all for me to be that sore, but at 12, we're a little more resilient. Yeah. Uh, so do you remember how long that took? Yeah, I assume we're talking hours. Hours, hours, yeah, but not days. Not and then, and then my brother later on decided to try to set the, the continuous record for trampoline jumping. Oh boy. And, and you got a, like a, a 10 minute break every hour or whatever, but he went three days. Three days, and, it, and basically without sleeping then, yeah. what I'm hearing. That's, yeah. that's the hardest part of yeah. that. But he didn't get in the, in the world record book either, because again, someone, someone broke it someone before he got it. broke his record too. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we got to talk about that. Another interesting thing uh, the, we were talking about before the interview is you're, you're a sailor, uh, you, and you sail here in Colorado along some of the lakes. Is that right? I do, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, my version of sailing is, you know, when you're on the water and there's another boat, you're racing, mm -hmm. because that's the only way you would want to sail. As fast um, as possible. <laughs> yeah, as fast as possible. And, and there's no reason to sail around the lake yeah. three or four or five times. You know, after that, it's pretty boring, right? So, so racing is the only thing you really need to do yeah. in sailing in Colorado. Yeah, so we sail up at, uh, sailed for a number of years at Carter Reservoir, sail up at Dillon. We sailed at the Santana 20 Nationals this last summer up in Dillon. Have sailed in the U-20 Nationals at Dillon again. Um, so it's, it's fun. So is that, is that something that you, you learn on your own or is that a family thing or where did you come into sailing? Um, well, early on in my career I was out in Kansas and, mm -hmm. and started to do windsurfing out there and then when I lived in the Marshall Islands, uh, started to sail in the Marshall Islands and then stopped it for a while and when came back to Denver, uh, picked it up again because there's an active sailing community here. I had no idea. There's a lot of communities here. There are. Well, uh, and then I had one other kind of interesting thing you were talking about. What's the most interesting place you've ever been? So, been to a number of interesting places, but one of the funnest ones was uh, when I was out at, in the Marshall Islands at Kwajalein, uh, was able to, my wife bought me a trip to go dive the Bikini Atoll in, in the Marshall Islands, which is where they set off the, the nuclear bombs and the very famous pictures uh, are there with the ships all around that they captured after World War II and they're trying to see the, the impact of that. And so when you see the, the atomic blasts in the water and the ships are standing on end, mm -hmm. uh, was able to dive the Bikini Atoll for a week and dove the, you know, the Saratoga aircraft carrier, which is the, the only, I, I think it's still the only divable aircraft carrier in the world. Mm. Uh, you can't eat the food that's grown on bikini even today because the cesium in the soil accumulates in the in the fruit, uh, in the in the seeds of the fruit, and, and it looks a lot like nitrogen. So um, they fly all the food in. So when you're diving there, what's obviously it's, it's really cool to get to dive an aircraft carrier. That's that's cool. What else is there to see? There's destroyers. I remember going down on this, this destroyer, and the, and the wrecks are pretty deep, right? So you're diving in regular air. For those of you who are divers, you know, um, uh, we're diving anywhere. The, the checkout dive is 90 feet, and then the bottom, the deepest I got was 190 feet, mm -hmm. um, and overran my dive computers and other things there. So and there's no decompression chamber on bikini, so uh, you're you have to be pretty careful, but mm -hmm. uh, it was a it was a great experience. But going down on this this destroyer that had been vertical, they think was vertical in one of the atomic blasts, and you go down there, it's laying on its side, 700 feet long, and you can see the the waves in the metal right from the force of the atomic mm -hmm. blast, right? And out of Kwajalein, there was also the uh, Prince Owen, which was a sister ship to the Bismarck, and it's out there and diving on it. Yeah. was, you know, a lot of fun. So there's just a lot of World War II wrecks out of Kwajalein and, and out there that were really fun to dive on. That's great. Neat opportunities you've had. Uh, well, let's go ahead and just, you know, start talking a little bit about the security space and, and how you got to do what you do. Let's start by, Sting, where, where you're from? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Sure. So uh, Colorado native, grew okay. up in Arvada, um, went to Colorado School of Mines because mm -hmm. Um, thought it was the best school out there, really didn't know what I wanted to do, and you know, they had forced me to pick a major, and so I picked the major that had the highest salary, so went into petroleum engineering. And you know, you're at the School of Mines, it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, and so, you know, 
during school, things were going great. And when I graduated, you know, the bottom fell out of the, mm -hmm. of the oil and gas business. And uh, I was thrilled to get a, a job out in Kansas. And when I moved out to Kansas, you know, graduated, got married, and moved to Kansas in three weeks. Uh, started, you know, doing hydraulic fracturing on, on gas wells out there. And, you know, and then after that, moved back, after four years, moved back to Denver, worked and completed a whole bunch of heavy oil wells in California uh, within that space. And then on the fourth round of voluntary lay layoffs where they're giving pretty good severance, right? Year severance, trying to get people to exit the business, I decided to leave. I, they were closing their office here in Denver and I really didn't want to move to other places. I had my choice of moving to Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Midland, Texas, Bakersfield, California, or uh, uh, New Orleans, and decided I really didn't want to live in those cities for yeah. the rest of my life. So, so, so what did you do next? So after that, started a, my own company for a period of time, trying to do reservoir simulation. Really never got it to the market, uh, but learned a lot by doing that. And then we were also doing some, some IT consulting, and, and uh, my business partner, got approached by uh, uh, Johnson Controls at the time, and they needed someone to go out to the Marshall Islands to, to uh, do a four-week stint to work on their telephone system. And he turned it down, and he came to me and said, you know, I had this opportunity, and I said, well, you know what, you ought to do it. You can always say yes, you can't always say no. You ought to yeah. learn about it. And so we went back to him, and they said, well, you know, we want a pair of people. We want two people who work well together. Oh, well, might be kind of fun to go to the Central Pacific, you know, for a for a month and see what it's like. So yeah. we flew out there, four weeks turned to eight weeks. And then, um, you know, we they wanted us to work full time on their stuff, on their projects from Denver. We said, well, we can only work half time. Did that for about six months. And then a job opening came up and said, you know, living on a small tropical island might not be such a bad change. Mm. And, uh, you know, Try something new, right? So, yeah. so then moved out to Kwajalein and worked on initially on their. They have two main contracts out there: a technical contract and a, and a logistics contract. So, started on the logistics contract, which is providing um, all of the services for a small 3,000-person city in the middle of nowhere. Um, Kwajalein is is located centrally located in the Pacific, 2,000 miles from. Hawaii, Japan, and the northern tip of Australia. Um, it's on most maps because there's nothing else out there. Right, because you got to put something out there, huh? Right. So it's a military range. It's the last long, uh, long-range military testing range that the U.S. has. And so when I was out there, they were doing the Star Wars testing. <laughs> they would uh, launch the interceptors from Mech Island to Kwajalein, and and you know the the missiles would come from Vandenberg, and then they'd also launch peacekeepers from from Vandenberg into the lagoon uh, to test the accuracy and make sure they were still working. And then they also monitor for what they call new foreign launches, NFLs, out of Asia. And all that data is fed in. Um, used to be uh, NORAD, but now Peterson mm -hmm. military base. So, so a bunch of big radars. And yeah. the technical contracts supported the radars and, and the launches. And, and the logistics contracts supported everything else. You know. With, they had a K through 12 school system. They had a hospital, right? They have, so we had to deal with pharmacy systems. So were you doing technology for these guys or were you doing logistics? Or what, were you, what was your role? So I started out uh, in their communications area and they had an OC48 uh, sonnet system around the atoll around there, so. For those who don't know, OC48? Oh, it, it's uh, uh, you know a measurement of, of bandwidth, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, 2.4 giga. Uh, gigabits per second, which was a connectivity, which was a big deal at that time, mm -hmm. period of time, you know, yeah. in the early, early uh, 90s. And um, so learned that, right? Uh, taught myself programming, took classes, um, had some programming in college, but, you know, took, took remote classes from CU on telecom, mm -hmm. learning, you know, what a DS1 was and the, and the signaling and the framing and DS3s and and OC specs and all of that, right? And so, so worked and ran the unclassified networks out there for a period of time, and then moved over from the technical contract back to the uh, logistics and and uh, 
uh, ran basically I was the IT software manager. You know, I think it was a class away from being an or a certified Oracle DBA. Yeah. Uh, you know, those type of things, right? So, so did all the Oracle applications. You know, HR um, accounts payable, accounts receivable, uh, in addition payroll. Um, you know, all of the stuff to run a small, uh, small city. So how does it, how do you go from this to security? Seems like there's a sure. Ways out. Yeah. Yeah. So we started to get into security a little bit in at Quad. You know, dealing with some of the first firewalls, some of the home written ones from MIT Lincoln Laboratories, and some of the early ones, application firewalls with Sidewinder firewalls. If anyone remembers mm -hmm. those, sure. and and that type of stuff, right? And and then basically, um, uh, five years in, my my old boss, uh, he had left, and he was at a startup in the Springs, and he called, and called the home number, eight hours difference, right on time zones, and my wife answers. He said, "Do you think Mike would be interested in this job?" She said, "He sure would." <laughs> <laughs> she signed you up. Huh? <laughs> So I didn't end up going to work for that company, and it took me a year to leave, right? But yeah. I ended up going to work in the backbone architecture team for Quest Communications. Okay. Yeah. And that back when Quest was with a U or a W? With a W. Right. Yeah. It always had a, a W. Did it? Yeah. W? Oh, okay. A mistake. Yeah. But uh, uh, there, I joined two weeks after the, the Quest and the U.S. West merger. Yeah. One side note, yeah. uh, out of Kwajalein, it was kind of fun. Um, I hadn't realized it, but my father was out there in World War II intercepting Japanese radio traffic. So he originally started in Hawaii, and then he moved to Kwajalein. And so before he passed away, he was able to come out and we were able to actually go on the island and, and see the, the Japanese buildings and stuff that they occupied after the Marines had, had stormed the atoll and basically leveled everything out there. Yeah. And uh, so that was kind of neat. So. He was out there in World War II, and then I was there following him, which was kind of cool. Yeah, so I went, went in the Backbone team at, at Quest Communications, a lot of friction at that point. Um, interesting time, Joe Nascio was the CEO, who later why, went why to jail. Joe had a somewhat abrasive personality and mm. was pretty brutal on the U.S. West folks. Mm. Uh, after the merger, fortunately, I was on the Quest side of things, but but a lot of animosity there. And then at that same time, there were some interesting things going on with family and friends deals with vendors. Hmm. So getting calls around, you ha we have 800 Redback routers in this uh, warehouse, and we need you to certify them and deploy them on DSL. These were DSL uh, BRAS routers, and we. We took them into the lab, we evaluated them, and they were not very good. Let me yeah. just put it that way. And so, you know, getting calls from senior executives, when are you going to deploy it? Sorry, we're not going to deploy it, right? On, on VPN, cosine products, and other things, right? Yeah. You know, when are you going to deploy it? Well, there's a lot of issues with this. Turns out later, some of those folks had, you know, stock options in those vendors and, and, and other things, right? So, so that went on for a while. Took over, uh, uh, started as an individual contributor, working on on carrier DNS, combining different DNS systems. Then, then decided I really preferred you know being in in management and, and kind of driving a vision. Mm. And so then took over the the backbone team as far as uh, backbone applications and services, and we did all kinds of stuff. We did you know manage the the carrier DNS customer email for all of the, the uh, ISP customers and business customers, uh, radius infrastructure for authentication. We also did hosting certifications uh, within that. And, and during that time, I, I took over the single backbone security engineer for the company, right, mm. Don Smith. A shout out to Don, and, and he's still at, at CenturyLink. He's pretty well known in the security carrier space. But uh, um, grew the team up. and. Had some, you know, it was really fun and interesting times during that time, right? Because I kind of got my feet wet during that. I, I decided I better learn some stuff about security, right? Mm -hmm. So got my my uh, SANS GSAC, and you know, at that time there was the goal, and he had to write a paper, and and you know, wrote the paper on on carrier-based DDoS techniques, right, which is still out there, and mm -hmm. and. 
Then, you know, in 2003, had a couple interesting events happen. The first one was around a, an issue that Cisco had. So John Chambers called the CEOs of the top six carriers and said, we have this problem and we need you to, to help us with it. And they had a, a vulnerability in their backbone routers. And they were concerned that if the carriers went down, none of the enterprises would be able to download the patches. So all of a sudden, I'm in charge of this because I have you know the backbone team of was one or two engineers at that time, right? And so we spent the next uh, couple days in these tense sessions with with Cisco and, and a team of you know seventy people on these phone calls around. Cisco wanted us to block all IP protocols on our backbone except uh, uh, TCP, UDP, and ICMP. So we went and looked at what we were running on our backbone at that time. We had fifty-three different protocols running. It's like we can't do that, right? So we ended up negotiating a special NDA with the Cisco General Counsel after three days, and, and there were four vulnerable protocols, but the real big one was one called PIM, which is a multicast protocol. The problem was if you ran 75 PIM packets through a router that did not have PIM turned on, it would uh, lock up the interface and you had to reboot the router. Yeah. Right? So, so we blocked those four protocols, and, and then uh, Within one of the carriers, which I'll leave nameless, leaked this the information to their marketing department, and they made it public. Within six hours, we had started to see PIM traffic on our backbone that we never saw before, which so was really interesting. At the time, it worked out okay. It worked out fine, and and then we created you know the special group. So that was at the time of information sharing with uh, Barry Green, Chris Morrow, who's been over at Google for a long time now, but they were really advocates and, and really good at, at helping to educate carriers on backbone carrier security as far as BGP security and, and locking down routers and, and recolorization of, of packets on your backbone when you're running QoS and, and all kinds of, of, yeah. of techniques, implementing black hole filtering, both destination and source, implementing unicast RPF for anti-spoofing, all kinds of good carrier techniques, right? So involved with that. 2003 also is when the slammer worm hit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it caused havoc on the enterprise, but on the backbone, we only had one link go down, and we were really lucky because, you know, we were just well over-provisioned. But it became very clear, you know, we saw traffic levels rise within 10 minutes to, to huge volumes, right? Yeah. And so, as a result of that, we, we worked with the backbone architecture team to, to put a pretty innovative Backbones uh, architecture in where we took BGP out of the core, we privatized the core, and then we broke up our internet traffic, our long distance VoIP traffic, and our enterprise VPN traffic into different domains, and then segmented those within the backbone. So if you had another slammer event on the internet side, it wouldn't affect your long distance VoIP traffic, it wouldn't affect your enterprise VPN traffic for the traffic you were carrying for, for your enterprise customers, right? And I think that's still in in place today. Mm -hmm. um, let, me, let me just pause a second for this, from the story, if you don't mind, uh, ask you, you, you've been involved in two of the biggest industries in Denver. Obviously natural gas, we've been a natural gas city for forever, right? right. Um, and then telecom, and I, and I think it's kind of clear why we're a natural gas hub, but why are we a telecom hub? It's really... Decades of experience now, right? What, what, why are we here? It, because of geography. So Denver is a good place um, within the country, you know, when you're laying fiber optic lines and, and um, uh, you know, it's a, it has a good geographic region where you can, can access uh, different areas. And so we had a lot of telcos and cable operators, um, satellite providers kind of migrate why, here. You know, why Denver, not Salt Lake City or Salida or Wichita or, you know, or Cheyenne, right? Any, any any ideas why? I uh, I think just Denver was the major hub here, and then and then you had folks like you know Phillips Anschutz who who realized the potential of um, telecom, and you know he bought up all the the railroads. You know he made his money in oil and gas right now in Utah, and and then bought up the railroads and realized I have this right of way running across the country, and then you know what they did is laid fiber optic cables along the right of ways on the railroads for cost. 
right? So they didn't have to negotiate all those right away. And he was located in this area, for example. With so Anschutz and then Daniels is another big Daniels, there too. yeah. Do you know how, how, how does he factor into this? I don't. I don't know the story on Daniels. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously the DU guy, and there's the cable center down there at DU from his right uh, from his his investments. But I, I don't know. I, I'm just curious. Obviously, that's been a huge part of Denver, and probably part of why we we're such a good tech and security hub now is because we were a big telecom. Right, and we can, we continue to to uh, drive that. Right, when you when you look at Facebook, you know, Facebook has some of their backbone engineers here, right, and in other areas. So, uh, Charter, for example, you know, they've got their big engineering center, the SeaTac down south. Yeah. Uh, of course, Dish and Echo Star, right, Level Three. Uh, Quest, yeah. US West. Direct TV has a big presence here too. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, so it seemed to be a, a hub and a magnet, although with different consolidations, right, we aren't nearly as dependent on telecom as we used to be, just like oil and gas, which is probably a good thing for the city overall. Yeah. Anyway, I, sorry, it was a little bit of a tangent. It, it just occurred to me that you might have a little bit of perspective on this. and. Yeah. Uh, Always interesting to learn a little bit about the technical history here in Colorado. Yeah, and and the communications industry is a pretty small industry, yeah. really. You know, both nationally and and even internationally. So, um, but it was a fun time, right? In the early two thousands, around this, this is when we started to see the first real attacks against Pops, right? So we had to harden all of our backbone routers and uh, point of presence. Mm -hmm. And so we had Terrapops, where we had three main core routers in it, and we started to see attacks against, you know, the CPUs of the routers and other things. So you hadn't had to harden the services on the routers and really, um, you know, make it where they could survive that. You know, learning some of the techniques about ensuring that rate limiting the number of packets that co could go to the CPUs of the routers. You know, routers are really good at forwarding packets, but they don't have really big CPUs and memory. So if you can get the routers to start punting packets to the CPU, you can DOS them pretty easily, right? Did you did you have any background with the, the freaking, the you know, the phone hacking that we saw? It was more 90s, but I, I assume some of it extended into the 2000s as well. No, I was out at, at Kwajalein during that time, so yeah. I wasn't really involved with that. You know, some of the folks at, at Quest who was there be, before I got there, you know, they dealt with Mitnick and, and other yeah. folks, right? And and we're dealing with the, the FBI at that time, and they helped track him down. And he did a lot of fun antics to yeah. Quest before he got there. But uh, so by the time you got there, we they pretty well figured out how to how to protect against those activities. Yeah, in general, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you it kept going. You know, it kept evolving, and the and the attacks kept evolving. You know, so so in in we started to see the botnets. You know, we deployed the first DDoS monitoring system at Quest in 01. That was one of the first things mm -hmm. I did there, right? Uh, Arbor system, and and then I spent many years trying to get you know scrubbers in place. And only until we we supported the uh, Democratic and Republican national conventions in 08 would they put scrubbers in place. Mm -hmm. It was always too big of a of a uh, uh, budget hit for them. And, and this was a time of downsizing. Uh, we had talked about that. You know, the company was under continual downsizing over time, and, and it was interesting. You know, I followed our CEO one time, Dick Notabart, at the time, uh, in a speech to, to state uh, government uh, customers. And and what I didn't realize is, kind of during the bad time at, at Quest, they went, they came within ten weeks of not making payroll. Mm -hmm. This is a Fortune 200 company. Yeah. Right, so so there were some dark days there, and then the Nasha went to jail and, and other things. But but they had a very strict ethics and compliance program that resulted from that, and um, uh, which was a good thing. And and they were really a leader, I think, in their organizational structure around their uh, around their uh, compliance programs. They had a chief risk officer back in '04, hmm. right, that had all risk functions, you know, insurance, ethics. Uh, information security. You know, they had information uh, cybersecurity back in 2002, hmm. right? It's pretty early, yeah. It is pretty early, right? And and around it, so so they were pretty for, pretty forward leaning, um, but very driven by legal, as you yeah. might imagine, after having to restate. Compliance for sure. 
two billion dollars in in revenue, yeah. right? That, so fast forward me a little bit in your career there at, at Quest. You know, obviously you're you're leading the backbone team, and, and what what came next? Yeah. So then I decided to uh, I wanted to learn more governance and compliance instead of just technology. So moved over into the the uh, enterprise security team that had governance over the whole company, right? And and worked for the CISO there with kind of the assumption that, that I would become the CISO once she left. Mm -hmm. It was Mel Gates and, and she ended up leaving and, and became the CISO then in 2009. Um, ran the CISO program, you know, as the CISO until the merger with, with CenturyLink. And then at that point, um, uh, couldn't be the CISO because my boss got the CSO job because mm -hmm. they were alternating management between the companies at the merger, yeah. so it became a peer of, of the CISO. And so we worked pretty closely together. And then at that same time, in 2010, went and uh, we had, Quest had, had gotten a letter from, from General Alexander about trying to, to do a 90-day pilot on protection of U.S. critical infrastructure in a partnership with the intelligence community. Mm. So got on a plane, flew out there, and uh, that 90-day pilot ended up being a, a three-year program around um, putting together a system to, to take sensitive indicators and apply it to unclassified traffic and, and protect certain key infrastructure. Sounds and like something that Snowden might have leaked. <laughs> it, it might have been. It, you know, it was all above board, right? And you can look, for example, at the at the uh, privacy assessment that DHS did on the on the project, yeah. you know that's all public. It was, it was um, on the up and up. Oh yeah, everything was in the up and up, and and with very good intentions from Alexander and and other folks around it, right? And yeah. and so the initial project was called the Enhanced Cybersecurity Services uh, within that space. Um, that was so so successful, right? Because they wanted private industry to fund it and. And it never really got the funding that it needed. And but then they, uh, uh, part of the way in, they had developed, you know, Einstein one, Einstein two, and then they were, they had developed Einstein three, and uh, for the federal government, yeah. and and deployed Einstein three in the DoD, but it really wasn't scalable, uh, in a in a manner. So they wanted to do Einstein three accelerated uh, around it, and so we we pivoted the program and. And worked pretty hard to to work on productions for the the .gov, the civilian federal government, and got that in place. Um, but DHS didn't have the authority to deploy it across all .gov agencies, and a lot of agencies wouldn't deploy it. Um, so then OPM happened, Office of yeah, Personnel the Management. Big, the big breach of the, the big breach OPM, of all the classified. Yeah. Uh, data, yeah. right, for everyone with clearances. And that really woke some people up. Uh, Congress then acted and provided additional funding for E3A and provide DHS congressional authorization to force those agencies to use E3A. And then was deployed across the entire uh, .gov space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the good news is, you know, we started on just the initial program with, with some core services, but um, you know, the good news is you haven't heard a lot about breaches in the .gov space. Mm. Uh, so to me, you know, that's a really good sign and, and talking with a few folks, I know they've had some, some good successes that they can't talk about. Mm. So, cool. you know, that is, that was pretty fun, right? Fun where you're, you're working on projects that you think, you know, make, make, make a, a difference. difference. Yeah. yeah and, and that's the reason why, you know, at the, at the, at the merger with CenturyLink and Level 3, I stayed on. Yeah. Right, because I was heavily involved with that, and and working on it. And what year did you did you do this work? The started in 2010 and went on to uh, probably I was directly you know actively hands on engaged to probably 2013, okay. um, and it was really a fun project, right? Because at that period of time, it wasn't about compliance; it was about how to get the mission done. Mm -hmm. And so we would develop architectures and we'd have people review them. And as long as you could protect the data, that's all that mattered. I re so we were the first company to have our, our architecture certified, right? Uh, and, and what that involved was we had 12 people from two different government agencies come out, mm 
and they split up into three pen testing teams and we had given them all the source code three months ahead so they had done all the source code analysis and they actually developed a zero-day exploit on, on the code and then they came in and, and one team started um, at, at uh, outside yeah. and was trying to break in and the next team assumed the first layer defense was compromised and started the first layer in. Then mm. the third team started in assuming the second layer of defense was compromised and started in there. They never got the sensitive data, right? Wow. Which was really, and learned a lot. Huh? No, so they were out there pen testing for two and a half weeks. Pretty um, you know, so, so it was kind of fun. Yeah. And learned a lot from that, right? Learned about, you know, one of my adages is, you, you know, when you, when you make security too complex, it can actually be worse than a simplified security yeah. program. Now, you don't want to make it too, too simple. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, right? But, but um, the conditions around the program were such that there were, you had to use a, people with existing clearances and you had to use existing facilities, which means that there were only two of us who had adequate level clearances at the time. Yeah. And a third person was getting uh, his clearance. It, it was, he had a clearance, but it was getting upgraded. Yeah. And, uh, and then I remember taking this conference room, ripping out the, that was, that was uh, appropriate, ripping out the, the tiles, putting in racks, putting in air conditioning, right? Yeah. And making it into a little small data room, data center, to do this and supporting it, right? And now it's much bigger than that, but, but uh, you know, and I left when they said, okay, the program's well established now, you gotta go through FISMA compliance. And I went, okay, this is not what I wanna do, right? I'm so, gonna so move on. Did that take us to 2014? When you that brings us into, yeah, 2013 and, and then 2014, right? The, uh, again, uh, working in that and also working as a peer to the CISO, so we were actively engaged. I was running about half the program at that point again. Mm -hmm. um, and, and John Kinnies had the other half of the program, right? We had it split. Yeah. And, and then the, the CEO of Quest uh, at that time had, was touting you know, world-class security, and, but they kept cutting the, the people in the program. And so then we brought in Lockheed Martin to evaluate our program, because yeah. we had worked with them in the DIB, because uh, we were a defense contractor. I'm sorry, the defense industrial base. So it's US defense contractors, and it's, it's the information sharing uh, there's a there's extensive information sharing and tactical yeah. sharing that goes among the defense contractors, and so uh, we had worked with them. And I had a lot of respect for Lockheed and Lockheed's program, so we brought them in to do an evaluation of ours, and then we gave them eight critical objectives uh, to see if they could breach those that yeah. would have significant impact on the business, and they were pretty successful. <laughs> And that got senior management's attention, yeah. and then we were in crisis mode, right? And so then we were trying to hire 50 people uh, and raise the program from 30, 32 people, I think, on up to 80, mm. which would, and dealing with, with all of the kind of knee-jerk reaction that happened, right? right? We had 11 critical projects that we had to do within sure. 30 days, and then 22 within 90 days. And it's like, you know, we've been trying to tell you this for the last three years, and you haven't been listening. And now, now it's a crisis. Yeah. Now it's a crisis, right? Well, that, obviously, there's you know some negatives and some positives about pointing out the the bad stuff, right? Maybe uh, they might make you move too fast, faster than you want to. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, at that point, I I decided to to leave. I was ready for a break, and an opportunity came up at Cable Labs, and and decided to take it. Hmm. So what is Cable Labs? I know we've talked about it a little bit, and you, know, you and I have talked, but for those listening who, who don't know anything about it, what is Cable Labs? So Cable Labs, you can think of Cable Labs as the Bell Labs for the cable industry. So we develop technology for the global cable industry. We're best known for DOCSIS that provides broadband into the home. We also develop the technology to provide voice in the home over cable, hmm. and, and we actually have a, a technical ME in our, in our a technical office. technical what? Emmy for our work in broadcast television. Like, like an, an Emmy Award? Yes. Oh, all right. Didn't yeah, know there was such so, a thing. <laughs> yeah, so, <clears throat> so worked there. So, um, and about four or five years ago now, the, we are a, we're a member-funded organization, 
So we have 60 members in 34 countries. These are cable operators. So they're the people you would think of, right? Comcast, Charter, Cox, Liberty Global in Europe, right? Uh, National Broadband Network out of Australia. Uh, you know, those, those folks. And so we get a percentage of their cable revenues and that's how we're funded. Hmm. So we're a relatively small organization. We have about 180 uh, employees and we have some contractors. <coughs> Pardon me. And, you know, we work on, on different projects ar around cable technology. And we're focused really in, in four main areas. We're focused in wired, which includes both coax and fiber both fiber of the home and access fiber. Yeah. Um, we're focused in wireless. So Wi-Fi technologies, which are really important for our members, and 5G wireless. We're focused in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the, the fourth, and we're just starting in that area. And then the fourth area is security. And those okay. are the four main areas that we're focused on. So I run the security team there and we're working in in a number of different areas. So We've secured the cable industry globally with PKI. We're a big believer in PKI. And so we run the global PKI for the cable industry. Mm -hmm. we, we own the route, right? We've deployed somewhere between a half a billion and a billion certs globally in cable products. Wow. Um, and, you know, what I like to say about cable apps, right? If you have cable in your home, you're using our technology, no matter mm -hmm. what you have, whether it's, whether it's broadband, voice, or video. Um, and so what we're trying to do is, is our budget is, is broken up into two main areas. 50% of our budget goes to R&D, which is what we classify as projects that are zero to three years out from commercialization. And then the other 50% is innovation. And those are projects that are three to eight years out. Mm. <clears throat> our CEO, Phil McKinney, is uh, you know, well known for innovation work. He spent nine years at HP as the chief innovation officer as the longest running podcast hmm. in the world now, active podcast. The longest running podcast in the world, huh? 13 years now. Wow. So you can, shoot for that, you can shoot for that record, no, Rob. 13, you and Alex 13, will, I have no idea what's happening 13 <laughs> months from now, much less 13 years. Um, and you know what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to develop, what Phil is trying to do with Cable Labs is develop a, a uh, sustainable, innovation engine for substantial innovations for the cable industry yeah is what he's trying to do and an example of that right now is is we're working on coherent optics so co coherent optics in the access networks we're trying to take ultra long haul technologies which is really expensive simplify that for access networks and shorter reach and over the technology that's deployed today we're trying to increase the capacity on a single fiber by 200 times and decrease the price by 80%. So, so let's dumb that down. What, what I think I just heard you say is, you know, you're trying to decrease the cost of longer runs, or you're using the longer run technology for shorter runs. Help We're using the longer run technology that you would run a, a fiber optics backbone across the country. Yeah. That's ultra long haul technology, and what we're trying to do is leverage that, but cheapen it, if you will, or reduce okay. the costs for access networks in metro areas. What's an access network? That's so the last mile, the last mile problem. No, okay. Not the last mile. The last mile is is the coax, but this is this is the the network from kind of where the cable modem connects into, for example, the CMTS, which is the aggregation point for for uh, an area, right? For where your cable. So my modem neighborhood might have a CMTS for five hundred houses or something like that. Yeah, or that or more, five hundred or a thousand or ten thousand. Okay. Houses, right, and then. Upstream of that, you have to carry all that traffic. Okay. So DOCSIS today, the current DOCSIS spec that we've developed, theoretical rates over coax are 10 gig down, one gig up, okay. right? Um, we're working on symmetric DOCSIS, which is symmetric 10 gig rates into the home. So when you carry that much traffic, the, the access network and then the core backbone network have to have significant capacity. Right. If, you have, if you have 1,000 houses getting 10 gig each, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of traffic. Yeah, <laughs> right. Understood. And so, the what we're trying to do with coherent optics, for example, is 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 dramatically reduce the cost and dramatically increase the capacity within that network mm. and, until you get to the core network. Yeah. Right. For 
for our operators and our members. And how does it, how does your security team play a part in that? Yeah, so we're we're focused on a number of things. So so we manage and and help architect uh, the PKI right around it. And and so cable has you know uses certificates to authenticate the cable modem to the to the head end equipment. And then we also have certificates to do secure software downloads. So you can't upgrade your cable modem firmware if you've ever looked at that. Okay. You can't do it. Hmm. The operators do it on your behalf. So that has really helped secure that, that ecosystem. That's what it's been for about the past 15 years. Yeah. So we, we deal with PKI and we deal with, with new architectures around that. We're putting in new security features in the next version of Doxus. We also, um, we do a lot of work in, in kind of a number of different areas. So that's one area. We, we're working with our wireless teams around 5G uh, wireless authentication around that. We're also working on some improvements to Wi-Fi hmm. within that space. We're really big into IoT and we're focusing in two main areas of IoT, consumer and medical. Yeah. Um, and we have, if anyone's interested, we put out some vision uh, films called The Near Future and we've done it two years in a row now. First one is called Game On, which is kind of a fun video of why you would need gig speed in the house. And then the second video this year is, is called A Better Place, around what IoT could be like for people aging in the home and what it would look mm. like if we had really good security there. Mm. So we're, we, um, we're trying to drive strong security controls and IoT products at a global scale. So if you give me the links for those, uh, I can put those in the show notes. Would we'll that do be, that. Would that be worth doing? Okay. I will I'll give a note to do that. So we are running short on time here, and I want to ask you a couple community-type uh, questions. You know, obviously, you've been in a part of Colorado generally your whole life, basically, you know, for a little bit. Um, but you know, the security community here for the last 15 years or so, is that about right? Yeah. Uh, well, to talk to me about how you've seen it changing over the last you know, decade plus and, and how, how it's been maturing. What have you seen? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, at the at the beginning, um, we were just kind of pockets of, of people within the Denver community, I believe. Yeah. You know, there was a period of time um, where Brennan Baybeck uh, with mm -hmm. Oracle, right? He was organizing uh, dinners and activities with yeah. with different folks to bring him together here, and then that kind of dropped off. He got pretty busy, yeah. right? And it's really, I'm really glad to see folks like yourself and Alex. Um, you know, stepping in. I know Ram Ramados over at CHI, he was heavily engaged in, in ISACA when he worked for me for a number of years, right, and helped with the uh, Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference and other things. But I think it's really grown. What was really amazed me, as you have done your podcast, right, is just the number of startups, mm -hmm. security startups there are in the area, because I didn't realize it. I didn't it's realize It's amazing, isn't many. it? You know, I think we all knew that there was like the five or six big companies, you know, right. the, the logarithm paying Optiv Webroot, but then there's like this two dozen other companies that, that I, I was totally surprised to, to learn about as well. Yeah, which is really neat and really fun. Yeah. And it's, it's great to see, you know, the, the medical community and the people involved with that, of course, telecom. It seems seems like the telecom folks are a little bit more shy, if you will. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a more reserved industry generally, right? Well, it is, and and I think it, they. Uh, my experience is is the the communication folks tend to associate with themselves, sure. right, around it. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to see you pulling us out of the woodwork, right? <laughs> Which is great. It yeah. really is. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, so I know we're getting short on time. I'd ask you any any final thoughts for the community. Any anything you want to throw out there? Yeah. So I'm, I'll get on my soapbox for yeah. for thirty seconds, right? And and you know the one thing that I've been trying to advocate for now for a while is is a mind shift on security of how do we use security to provide better customer experiences, mm. right? Whether that's residential customers, right? Whether that's business customers, whether that's your employees around it. And s way too often people view security as, as a cost center and a cost burden on the business, right? And it's like insurance. I only want to pay to the level I need, yeah. right? And and I think what we need to start thinking about as security professionals is, is instead, how do we make security really benefit the business, right? If we think about it and we're in at the very beginning of uh, product design or architecture design, how do we build security in so it's 
really simple to use, really easy to use, and just works seamlessly and transparently for our customer, whoever that customer mm -hmm. is. I remember our uh, back at CenturyLink, the CEO going, can't I, you want me to change my password, can't I just use my thumb scan, you know, to do it? And at that point in time, we didn't have the, the technology and the tools to do that, right? Mm -hmm. But now we can start to do that, yeah. you know, and associate it with, with WebAuthn and, and, and the different um, biometric, secure biometric protocols, right? Yeah. But in, you know, we're working on next generation home networking architectures, right? And, and in the past with, with uh, infected devices with IoT in the home, you try to do these customer notifications, right? Put in the first customer notification system back in 06, which is still in use, right? At scale, automated customer notification system for infections. And, but that's not gonna scale in an IoT world, right? When you have 300 connected devices in the home, if I send you a notice that I, I'm seeing this anomalous traffic from this embedded Linux system, and can you tr figure out where that is in your home and then patch it, please? Yeah. You know, and some people want us to cut off the internet service of that person mm. until they do, right? And it's like, what a horrible customer experience, right? Instead, we need dynamic networks that recognize those infections and then limit the impact on customers, right? Using SDN technologies and 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 other monitoring technologies. It's a little big brotherish, and we definitely have to design privacy into that along with security. Um, but there are easy ways, that's not a good, they're not easy ways. There are ways to do that, but it actually takes a lot of a lot of thought behind it. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a great point, and certainly the better we can do to not be an inhibitor, but be an enabler for customers having a good experience, the, the better off we're going to be. Right, because when you think about yeah. it, people don't buy security. They don't want right. to buy security. Right. But they will pay a premium for a good customer experience. Sure. And when you have poor security, you have a really bad customer experience. Yeah. Right? And so if you can demonstrate to the business that you're helping them, you know, through that customer yeah. experience, through good, strong well thought out security measures. That's where I think we yeah. need to go, you know, in the security industry. Well, awesome. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it with that and hopefully we'll, we'll hear more soon what you guys are doing at Cable Labs and we'll catch up with you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, right. Rob. This has been Colorado Equal Security and we'll talk to you guys next week. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.